Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Some of you in this room have read uh, the new book by Carol Tavares entitled Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, colon, Why We Justify Foolish Beliefs, Bad Decisions, and Hurtful Acts. She writes in the book, most people, when directly confronted by evidence that they are wrong, do not change their point of view or course of action, but instead justify it even more tenaciously. Even irrefutable evidence is rarely enough to pierce the mental armor of self-justification. We need, though, a few trusted naysayers in our lives who are willing to puncture our protective bubble of self-justifications and yank us back to reality if we veer too far off. I think she's right on two counts. First, we are hell-bent, and I quite literally mean that, on self-justification. And second, someone needs to call our bluff. Enter St. Paul, uh, who does things very, very well uh, and serves us well this evening. He writes to the Christians in Philippi and, by extension, writes to us. And In, that, in those days, the church in Philippi, and the, the members of it were lured uh, by dangerous influencers who taught a message of self-justification, and Paul is trying to wake them up, wake his congregation up to the danger that is implicit in that theology. I want to speak about two things tonight. I want to speak about Paul's warning regarding self-justification, and I want to speak about his own personal reflection upon true justification. So those two things this evening. Uh, first, Paul warns uh, um, with with biting words about self-justification. This is in verse 2. I'd like you to follow along with me. Paul writes, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, so right off the bat... You know that Paul is dealing with something, uh, with something rather controversial, and he's using very strong and explicit language for his adversaries, right? He calls them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. More on that in a minute. Uh, why? Uh, what is Paul getting at here? Well, um, Paul is doing what he does in many of his letters, actually. He is reprimanding a group of religious influencers who are claiming that the Gentile, that is non-Jewish, Philippian Christians uh, were required, they taught, to adopt certain aspects of the Jewish law, the law of the Old Testament, in order to be real Christians, especially circumcision, especially circumcision, which was the entrance rite uh, for men uh, to come into the uh, people of God, right? to become fully Jewish in that sense. Well, Paul calls these people mutilators of the flesh. Why? Is he being uh, hyperbolic and metaphorical? No, 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 he's being quite literal. 
um, these are people that demand the mutilation of the flesh, that is, the, a circumcision of people. Uh, and he also calls them evildoers. Uh, we'll get into that more in a minute. And lastly, he calls them dogs. That is, uh, that was slang uh, that some Jews used for Gentiles back then, suggesting their, their lacking of a full humanity, right? They were subhuman. Now, Paul uses that term not for Gentiles, but for these Judaizers who were trying to impress upon people the necessity of entering the old covenant before they could become new covenant Christians. Why does Paul employ such strong language for his adversaries and for his adversaries who seem to be earnest, religious, devout? You know, he's not criticizing Satanists. He's not calling Satanists dogs and mutilators of the flesh. He's calling people that take the Old Testament very, very seriously these things. That seems, at least at face value, a little strange. So why would he be using such severe language for people like this? After all, the Judaizers were simply offering a compromise. And who doesn't like a little compromise? A compromise. They were saying, you know, God gave us the law. You know, Moses didn't sit there scratching it on a big rock. God did that work. God gave Moses the law, and the law is good. You know, the Psalm 119 says so. And what's the harm in a little body piercing? What's the harm? If it signals to other people that you take religion and the old view seriously, what's it really going to hurt you? I think you should get it done, and then everything is going to be fine. You get the best of both worlds, the old and the new. We're just adding the missing element to Paul's gospel. It's interesting. I have a friend who was a runner, um, but all of a sudden, in mid-course in his running career, he started collapsing rather regularly, um, losing his breath more easily and his strength. And they did all these tests on him, and finally they discovered what it was. It wasn't anything too serious. He was simply missing zinc from his diet. As soon as he got a little zinc, he was right back on the track doing very, very well. The Judaizers are kind of like the doctor that prescribed the zinc. They're like saying, you know, Paul's gospel is really neat. So terrific. We're all in favor of Jesus. We think he's great. We think his accomplishments are massive. All we want to do is add a little element to this to make it seem more legitimate. So we're adding zinc. We're adding, in this case, the rite of circumcision that suggests that people are part of the old covenant before they become part of the new covenant. But Paul thinks that this is absolutely awful. Because this motion, this movement, this zinc, if you will, actually sends a meta-message, and a meta-message that is quite serious and even blasphemous. And the meta-message is this, Jesus isn't enough, and the cross has innate deficits that you need to make up by your own obedience to the old way, the old law. You need to contribute something to really create salvation. And for the Apostle Paul, there's quite literally nothing worse you could say or do. To diminish the effectiveness of the cross is the ultimate blasphemy. The cross isn't enough, you need to add to it in some way. Now, these people that were offering this message were seen, therefore, as evildoers. Even though they might look quite religious, but they were seen that way because they were leading people away from the one full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. They were diminishing the light. And so my point in this chunk of the sermon is simply to say we can be misled by religion. 
We can be misled by irreligion too, but we can certainly be misled by people who look and dress like me up here. We can be misled uh, by people whose lips or pens drip with earnest piety and wisdom. We can be misled. I was, whenever I get bored at a coffee shop and I'm kind of working and kind of um, playing Candy Crush on my phone, uh, sometimes I uh, overhear things and I like to listen to conversation and eavesdrop. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I get bored, I'm just like you. So, um, uh, and I, I, was hearing, uh, I was hearing somebody, one person say to another person, and maybe because I was in earshot, I don't think so because I didn't recognize them, but they said this to one another, you know, there's just too much grace talk in church these days, too much grace talk in the Christian church. What about obedience? And then, and I'm like, well, I sort of track what you're, kind of, but you've got to be careful how you parse that. But then um, the other person said, yes, you're so right, because after all, obedience is our contribution to the gospel. And I, I did not say this because I'm a man of great politeness and Britishness, but I, 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 in my heart I said, eh, now you're a heretic. Um, <laughs> now you're a heretic. Um, uh, it's just true. I mean, it, it's, it's not dissimilar to what people put on their Facebook religion profile because Facebook evidently still thinks you can be religious, and they give you an option to say what religion you are. And a lot of Christians summarize their Christianity in this way, love God, love your neighbor. And I'm like, that is an excellent summary of Judaism. Very well done. That's the law. That's the summary of the law. We just read it. It's the summary of the law. Now, it's right, good, and true. No ethical problem with it at all. But that's actually not the summary of the Christian faith, which is I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. You get it? Yeah. So we believe in, a, in, in the summary of Christianity that is for people who have failed to love God and their neighbor. Our obedience, friends, is lovely. I'm not dissing it for a sec, but it is the overflow of what God does in the gospel. It is never the source of our Christian identity. The source of our Christian identity is naked grace. It is one full, perfect, and sufficient satisfaction and sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And so Paul is insistent, in fact, so insistent that he says to his non-circumcised Gentile audience these words, we are the circumcision. All of you people who haven't been circumcised, you are the real circumcision. In other words, you're really in God's in-crew. You're really the chosen people because you've believed in God's Messiah, because you belong to Christ. And therefore, Paul says, we put no confidence in the flesh. You put no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in the old way of doing things, no confidence in sort of a self-justification by what you do. And then Paul um, warns after his warning about self-justification. He talks about the source of true justification. And Paul here expresses in an uncharacteristic way, at least within the, the context and literature of the old world where people didn't concede too much about their personal lives. That's radically changed in our own day, but it was not true then. Paul expresses a deeply personal admission. He kind of unmakes his, or the unmaking of his former self. He exhumes that. And he says um, in, in the next verse, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. There's that uh, sort of new phrase, hold my beer. Right? <laughs> you think you got this? I got this. Hold my beer. And then he says several things in a row that show his supremacy regarding fleshly concerns, uh, especially within the old covenant. And notice, friends, later in the passage, he calls these all gains, that according to the old system, according to the old law, each of these was, would be understood as a good thing. 
First, he says, circumcised on the eighth day. Remember, the whole discussion is about circumcision here and people seeking that initiation rite. He's saying, I had that done, and it was eight days in, just like I was supposed to have, meaning not only were my parents Jewish, belonging to the people of Israel, we were observant Jews who took the law seriously, and so he received that mark as belonging to the people of Israel. But then he continues. He doesn't stop there. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? He's not, a, he's not only a Jew, he's a card-carrying member of one of the f- more faithful tribes of Judaism. You may remember in 722, 10 of the 12 tribes were completely wiped out by the Assyrians, only two left, and he's part of the right tribe, Benjamin. As to the law, he writes, a Pharisee. So he's not only a good Jew from a good tribe, but he was a student within the strictest academy, right? He went to Yale. I mean, he's part of this, one of the stricter groups within Judaism that takes the law seriously and wishes to, in some ways, instantiate it in every aspect of life. And he continues further. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Not only was Paul part of a strict sect, he was, what we would say today, severely devout, meaning he took everything so seriously, including the admonitions in the Old Testament to punish heresy and heretics, that he, he thought, this is now upon me. I have this task. If I want to live up to the expectations of the law, I'm going to take heresy and heretics seriously, and we're going to deal with them squarely as prescribed. And lastly, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he's not only said, I was a member of God's chosen, of the right tribe, of the right school of thought, um, uh, the right level of emotional concern and zeal. He's now saying that as to the official code that was given to all of Israel, I was blameless. Now, people can misread that and think that Paul is being hyperbolic, saying that he doesn't sin, um, or that he, or, or there's other misreadings too. Uh, Paul is not here saying or claiming sinlessness because the law gave provisions for sins, that if you sinned, you were to offer certain sacrifices. Paul is saying that he was an observant Jew that did that kind of thing, and when he fell into sin, he made the right kind of sacrifices to, um, to appease, right? But Paul's point in creating this hierarchy, this pyramid in which he, in some ways, is the pinnacle. He is the capstone. He is the top dog, if you will. His point is that he was everything that the Judaizers or the mutilators of the flesh wished they could be. He was at the top of his game. And therefore, if that system of thought and practice was right, there is no more authoritative voice in the world than his own. But, but, while Paul used to see these things as gains, because under the old covenant, you remember that obedience led to blessing, disobedience led to cursing. Paul was as obedient as a man could be, right? Even though these things were seen as gains, he had a midlife crisis, uh, a midlife crisis that involved a theophany. Now, many people in this room, because I've met with you, have had midlife crises. I'm among them. I mean, I understand completely. Nevertheless, he had a midlife, mid, midlife crisis because Christ himself appeared to him and called him to be the, uh, the, the voice of the gospel to the Gentile world. And in that moment of crisis, he met a Christ who only justifies one sect of people. And it has nothing to do with Abrahamic blood. It has nothing to do with piety. Christ comes for the sect of the ungodly, meaning every last person you've ever known, including yourself. Uh, And Paul comes to this life-changing epiphany, and this is in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, 
I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now note, Paul is not neutral as he reflects upon his old life. He doesn't say, well, you know, I learned some life lessons along the way, met a lot of nice people. Uh, I was uh, spiritually formed in my youth in this way. Uh, no, he mentions it three times, in fact. He counts everything as loss. Everything is a rather expansive term because it means everything. Uh, everything as loss, says it three times. And then one time he uses the word rubbish. He doesn't use the word rubbish. In Greek, it's skubala. Some of you know the definition of that. It's a crass word in Greek, and it doesn't mean garbage. Uh, a nice way of saying it would be dung, right? I consider everything dung or excrement compared to knowing Christ. Now, I want you to note, friends, Paul does not write this. I consider everything about my former life garbage. He does not write this about his sins, you know, leching or mething out or having one night stands. No. He says this about his religious resume. He says this about the best things in his life, everything that was going well, everything that he did for God to, in some ways, legitimize himself. Remember, under the old law, this comes from Romans 2, it is not the hearers of the law who will be justified, but the doers of the law. So, he's functioning that way. Well, Paul is here not hating or distancing himself from his sins. He is saying that my religious resume that I used to care so much about no longer matters to me. Now, he's not self-hating here. He's not torching his entire past. He's making a comparison He's saying, compared to knowing Jesus, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, compared to knowing Jesus and being saved by Jesus and having the foreign righteousness of Jesus, compared to that, everything in my own history is worthless to me. Uh, not unlike, you know, fool's gold, you know what it is, is shiny, beautiful, and looks valuable, but compared to real gold, fool's gold is, well, for fools. There's no comparison with the real thing. And so Paul distances himself from the old world in which you have an identity before God that is cobbled together via your own labor. What made this change for Paul? Well, we know Jesus Christ woke him up on the road to Damascus. Damascus. Jesus is not only the rude awakening for Paul, Jesus is the rude awakening for all the self-justifying human race. Because Jesus taught Paul, and Paul teaches us, that only Jesus justifies only Jesus justifies. You may remember the slogan for the Marines. The slogan, at least at one time, for the Marines was, uh, if I hope I get this right, I think I'm remembering it correctly, earned, never given. Now, that may be fine for the Marines, but it's just not fine in Christianity. Uh, Christianity is, you just swap a few words, that's all, is given, never earned. Given, never earned. The prayer of humble access before we receive Holy Communion says the same thing. We do not presume to come to this your, your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness. We trust in a foreign righteousness. So that's what we have in this passage. Paul is warning us about our self-justification, justific and he's offering us the true source of justification which is the merciful God who enfleshed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who comes for the sect of the ungodly. 
for those who have ruined their lives through squalid choices and failed dreams. Well, unlike Paul, and unlike his Judaizing combatants, we tonight have never lived under the old covenant, which legitimacy comes through labor, or entrance rights, uh, religious ones like circumcision, but we often function, even without these things in our own personal histories, we often function like we do, like that this is our background in some way, that our justification or our okayness before ultimacy, before God, is somehow self-engineered. We act this out all the time by giving good things in our life way too much emotional weight. There are things in your life right now that take up way too much rent space in your head constantly. It might be family reputation within the community. It might be intelligence and how well-respected and well-read our publications become. It might be how we rank on rateyourprofessor.com. By the way, never fill that thing out. It is just savagery. It's just awful. Um, it might be if our life is balanced, if we have a balanced life, whatever that means. It might be physical beauty, you know, the shape of our bodies or our lips or our jawline, right? Or it might be schooling for children. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's funny. I didn't know people were so opinionated about this, but yikes. I, uh, so uh, two of our kids go to the Christian school. One is now going to the public school, and that's been chill and fine. Um, but then Monique talked to somebody, and she was like, oh, where do your kids go to school? And she told them, and, and the, the person's jaw just dropped, and she looked at Monique like we were murderers. And, uh, and she said, oh, that's nice, but her face said that's not nice. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I didn't know you hated your children. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, you're sending them to the public school. Uh, because for her, the right kind of schooling was Jesus, right? That was Jesus, the sort of a surrogate savior, if you will. But it might be some sort of spiritual achievement, right? Books we've read, practices we practice, finding the ever-elusive, perfect, correct domination. Good luck on that. Um, you know, if you're coming from one side of the cultural divide, justification comes via self-love, self-care, self-expression, and self-created identity. If you're coming from the other side of the cultural divide, it's about self-mastery, self-determination, self-assertion, and being a self-made man or woman. All of the theology that I just mentioned is absolutely cruel and toxic. Cruel. It's cruel because it puts the soteric work right back on you. It puts everything squarely on your shoulders and says that everything is worked for, not given. Nothing in life is gift. These things easily become for us a new Sinai of sorts, a new set of laws, and we subconsciously assume that obedience to them will yield some sort of soteric effect. But enter the Apostle Paul who writes to us in all of our self-justification and self-made solutions and says, it's all dung, <laughs> brothers and sisters. All of the things that we place too much emotional value in, it's dung compared to knowing Jesus and all of his benefits, all of it, the schooling techniques, the reputation, the need for recognition, it's all dung. It's worthless. Now, I didn't say it, so you can't get mad at me. Like, it's in the Bible. I mean, that's just what he says to all of us who prize things too highly. Um, I'm going to close with this illustration from a ridiculous film from the 1980s. Are you surprised? Um, you, many of you in this room know that I have a fixation with the 1980s that is enduringly great. And it comes from a, a film uh, called Meatballs, which is a, uh, it's a comedy starring Bill Murray from the 1980s. But anyway, in this film, Murray plays a counselor at a lackluster camp that includes all sorts of misfit kids. And they are 
uh, later in the film, competing in an athletic event with another very fancy uh, athletically or um, trained camp called the Mohawks. But all of Murray's kids are totally crushed because they know that they're not up to the task. And so they're pouting and devastated and they want to go home. And at one point, Bill Murray gives this ironic motivational speech to all of them. And some of you know it or have heard it. And he says, sure, Mohawk has beaten us 12 years in a row. Sure, they're terrific athletes. They've got the best equipment money can buy. Every one of their guys has a personal masseuse along with blood and urine tests every 48 hours to maximize their performance. They use the most sophisticated training methods from the USSR and East Germany combined. Remember, it's the 1980s. But he says, but it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. I tell you, it just doesn't matter. And if we win, even if we play so far above our heads that our noses bleed for 10 days, yes, even if we win and they lose, it just doesn't matter. And if we lose, it just doesn't matter. That is my word to you this evening, and I'm not even close to kidding. My beloved family and God, many things in your life right now, tonight, are good and laudable and might even be considered gains in some sense, and that's fine. But not, says Paul, compared to knowing Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from you, but having a righteousness that has been decked upon you, placed upon you by someone foreign by someone who loved you enduringly to the end. Our good things that we prize are never, ever a source of our justification nor our identity. Compared to knowing the grace of Jesus, it just doesn't matter. So I'm going to ask you some questions, and I invite you to respond with that wondrous, satisfying refrain, it just doesn't matter as we together kill all our idols. How much money will I make? Will my peers validate me? Shall I ever vacation in Tuscany? Will I ever get to cleaning my basement? Will my hair ever look as good as Dr. Shepson's? Will my kids be mentally well adjusted by the time they're 25? Will I ever be the head of my department? Will my parents ever approve of my major or my job or me? Will I spiritually progress to an acceptable degree as defined by myself? What if I can't lose the weight? What if I can't figure out my own identity? What if I stay single forever? What if things don't ever come together and I never measure up? Because compared to knowing Christ... So friends, when it comes to things ultimate, Jesus alone matters. When it comes to reconciliation with your maker and judge, Jesus alone matters. When it comes to your justification, Jesus alone justifies. He is perfectly capable of doing so. He alone justifies. He alone defines. His cross is entirely sufficient and his resurrection proved it. Jesus alone matters. Trust in that because Jesus has got you tonight. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They could